Thank you for joining us for this podcast from College Church of the Nazarene, University Avenue. The following was recorded live on location in Bourbonnais, Illinois. Well, I think this morning uh, I'm not going to bury the lead. Just kind of get straight to it. Pull off the band-aid, just come up and say it. No matter how much you think you are, you're not in charge of your life. Uh, I'm not in charge of my life. You're not in charge of your life. No one is in charge of their life. And no matter how much you think you are, ultimately you are not really in control. You're not really the boss and you're not really in charge. And it doesn't matter how old you are, or how young you are, or how rich or how poor. It doesn't matter what your business card says, or if you're fancy enough to have your own custom letterhead, or if you can hire or fire people, or whose life you can ruin with a single tweet. It doesn't matter how insignificant or significant you think you are, and I would even go so far as to say it does not matter what religion you have, or faith you hold to, or even if you don't want to have one. I assume by virtue of you being in the room that you're at least a little faith curious, right? But the reality is, you're not in charge, and that's a really big deal. And I am sure that for some of us, you're thinking this morning, well, of course, Joel, Jesus is in charge. I know that. And of course, you're right. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is Lord. But sometimes I wonder if we might mean that in the smallest way possible. Even when we've been following Jesus for years and years, maybe we think that, or we are prone to thinking that we still have a lot of control in this whole Jesus thing. We are, often, after all, very accustomed to having things our way, right? That is what it means to live in America in the 21st century, right? Customization is everywhere. It is the hallmark of our civilization, right? It's all about freedom and choice, and it is, so it's natural for us to assume that we have some high degree of control. And I don't, I don't want to be unfair or parody because I think it's fair for us to recognize doctors and psychologists and developmental scientists, they might describe for us as humans the process of growing into adulthood as a process of developing autonomy and boundaries and control in our life. And I think that that's very true. Because if you have spent any time recently around a toddler, you know the significance of the words no and mine, and I do it, right? We understand that a part of childhood and growing into adulthood is this question of autonomy and boundaries and control and how that defines our relationship with ourselves and with one another. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans 6. When the Bible describes who's really in charge and what true freedom is, and Paul explores this, I think, really well in his chapter, in his letter to the churches in Rome. Now, if you don't know, it might be worth knowing that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Rome before he ever met them. And it's unique among his writings because he usually is addressing churches and leaders that he himself has discipled. At this time, however, he is sending the letter ahead of him because he's on his way to Rome as a prisoner. Rome is the center of the civilized world, and so Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, 
had been wanting to preach the gospel in Rome. And so it seems, despite the circumstances, he is eagerly anticipating his visit there. So he sends the letter ahead of him as an, in, as an introduction. And many people consider it to be his most eloquent articulation of the gospel. Martin Luther, the reformer, said that the letter to the Romans was the most important book in the entire Bible other than the gospels. And he advocated that Christians should read it every day and should even memorize it. And I'm not going to ask that of you because Paul didn't, Luther didn't have a smartphone with the Bible app. And so throughout the first five chapters, throughout the first five chapters, Paul has waxed eloquently about how God demonstrates his tremendous love and grace to us through Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, that even when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God, that we have been baptized into the death of Christ and been brought into a newness of life, that we have been set free from the captivity and bondage and power of sin in this life and have been made right with God. But as I read this text for this morning, I wonder if we are at a bit of a disadvantage to the first audience. We may not be able to understand or to hear Paul's words quite as well as they did, or at least not most of us. Because as Paul was sent this letter ahead to Rome, it would have been received by a group of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And many of those people, especially the Gentile Christians, would have come to faith as teenagers or adults. And they would have remembered their own way of living. They would have known how they had worshipped other gods and made sacrifices to Caesar and trusted in other powers for a good life. They would have remembered how they had been bound to the social expectations of morality and commerce and trade and sex and truth. And when Paul asked them, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. It would not have been far from their minds to recall the things that would make them blush, and also to return joyful praise to God's goodness and grace in their life. And we might be at a disadvantage to them. See, I remember as a teenager hearing remarkable stories of conversion. People like Pastor Jesse Spencer or Dave Develli, who used to be men for all intents and purposes, that I would not have wanted my children around. But then they met Jesus, and their life was radically transformed. I mean, at the beginning of this year, Chris Brandstetter stood in this pulpit and reminded us of what he called the Junkie Jesse Joy. Right? I used to hear stories like that as a teenager and a young adult, and I had a little bit of envy at their testimony, which is silly to say, but I thought surely they had real reason for hope and love and faith and joy. And I just grew up as a good Christian kid with a boring story and no real testimony, and maybe you feel that way too. And so I wonder if we feel like we're at a disadvantage to these first listeners. We should also remember that plenty of the people who would have heard Paul's letter read aloud to them would have been or were slaves or servants. 
I mean, we know what slavery is and servitude is. I mean, it's a part of our national history, but it is something that we think of as far off. Or at least, like, we, we like to think of it that way. We know that modern slavery is a thing. But in the ancient world, anywhere from one-third to two-thirds of the people were or have been slaves or servants at that time. They did not have a say over their life. They were controlled by other people. It was a common thing. It was a cultural norm. And so for Paul, it's a very accessible imagery, which is why he uses the metaphor. And he says, don't you know? Because of course you know. That when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. And so of course, this is imagery. And it's crude imagery. But Paul says it's the best metaphor he's got. Because, of course, we're not really slaves to God. Because slavery is a brutal human invention and it's the product of sin. Right? It robs people of their dignity and their humanity that, that they deserve as people made in the image of God. And we can be glad that the arc of history has bent towards increasing dignity and care for people. And so I think it's fair for us to bristle or be uncomfortable with the metaphor of slavery. But still, Paul is pointing us to something crucial that we need to hear. We are not in charge of our lives, no matter how much we think we are. And we might think we hear Paul plainly. You're either slaves to sin, or you're slaves to righteousness. But for us, there is a modern illusion of freedom that there is a third choice, which is, I can do it my way. The idea of liberty and freedom is so baked into our culture. It is a part of our mythology. Personal freedom is the air we breathe in America. Freedom and liberty is the water we swim in. It is the theme of every patriotic song. It's the center of every political debate. It's the heartbeat of all of our founding documents. And, and it's fair to say that the kind of liberty and freedom we have here is truly a gift. I think we were reminded of that a few weeks ago when Alexei and Olga, missionaries from Russia, stood on this platform and talked about how constrained their lives were now. If you had been to or watched any of the services from General Assembly, you would have heard and seen video stories and testimonies of people sharing about the incredible work that God is doing in their lives, but they were not named and it was only referred to as a creative access country because our denomination is at work in places that we cannot risk naming because Christianity is illegal or persecuted there. And so I don't want you to misunderstand me. The kind of political freedom that we have here is truly a gift. But perhaps we think that there is some third way in our life, that we can do it our own way, there is somehow a neutrality. And it creeps into all sorts of things. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had to deal with the costs of people wanting to be neutral as he wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail. He had revisited the critiques of some of the white moderate pastors that he had been receiving of the direct action he and the civil rights movement had been taking, and he admitted that he did not usually respond to critiques, but he felt he had to this time. And so in his long and eloquent letter, among other things, he said this, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been 
gravely disappointed by the white monorail. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the black man's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white monorail who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension than to a positive peace which is the presence of justice. Now, I don't, I don't bring this up to say that we ought to always take action on everything because I think there is also a risk of us rushing in, assuming that we have all the solutions and our assumptions are all correct. But I do think that Dr. King and the Apostle Paul both remind us of an important thing with which we deceive ourselves. There is no neutrality. There is no third way. We are not free to choose our own side. We cannot have it our own way. That is not the third option. And the problem is that when I think I am free to choose my own way, I'm not really free at all. Because I, when I try to choose for myself, I will always discover that I am back in bondage to sin. And in this letter, Paul argues that grace accomplishes several things for us. That God's goodness and love, by God's goodness and love, these happen for us. Not because we earn it, but because it is a gift. I mean, and the first thing we know is we are forgiven of our guilt and the debt of our sins. It's not something we can accomplish on our own because the only thing we can earn as he said, the wages of death, what we deserve for our sin is death. And the result of going our own way will always be self-destruction, will always be imploding, will always ultimately be final death. But God's grace forgives us and delivers us from it. Amen. And the second thing Paul declares is that grace sets us free from the mastery of sin in our life. That we are no longer compelled to sin or ruled by sin. And when Paul talks about being under the law, he is referring to the law as a good thing. That it is God's right and righteous expectation of how we ought to live as created persons. But the problem is we don't want to do it. We might be able to do it outwardly. Like, I can drive the speed limit so that I don't get a ticket. But we don't want to do it. We cannot fulfill it from our hearts because we are inwardly twisted by sin. But grace sets us free from the captivity of sin. And so Paul writes, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Yes. The other thing that, sin, that grace does, the other thing that grace does, is it empowers us to choose to love God, and to love our neighbor, and to love ourselves, and to love creation. God sets us free from sin for righteousness. God empowers us to be obedient with our whole heart and to choose to love God and serve God. And the result in our life is what we call sanctification, holiness, being made in the image of Christ. And so Paul writes, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is all very good news indeed. I mean, we have a good God who is worth entrusting ourselves to. This is what we are called to do and to offer ourselves daily as instruments, as weapons, as tools at God's disposal for the purpose of righteousness. And so we participate with God in the renewal of all things and the restoration of all things by God's grace and goodness. We are not in charge, God is, and that is good news. And in the freedom, the true freedom that we are offered as Christians is freedom from sin in all of its destructiveness and freedom for choosing to submit to God. The freedom we are offered as Christians is not libertarianism. It is not liberty to do as we please. It is not for us to live as we wish, but to re realign ourselves by our choice with God's will and desire for the world. So that is why Paul uses this crass metaphor of slavery. We are to present ourselves as if we were slaves to God. And this is the only option for us as believers. He writes, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And all of this is God's gift to us. There's nothing we need to do, nothing we can do to earn it. Grace is God's favor upon us poured out in lavish, extravagant love. And our option, our freedom, is to submit to God as Lord. There is no third way. It is not my way. There is no neutrality here. And when I think I am free to go my own way, I'm really not. Now, I want to, I want to avoid some extreme dualism, black and white, either or, this or that thinking with this passage. Because that type of binary thinking can create problems for us. And it's not as present in the Bible as we might be prone to think. Because I want to be careful about what Paul is, I don't think Paul is, what Paul is not saying. When we read this passage, we might think that our bodies are evil. When he says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. A long time ago, good old St. Augustine, or Augustine, suggested that all temptation is a form of lust, with sexual lust being the worst kind. And it has messed us up ever since. There's a long, long, bad, terrible Christian tradition of thinking that our bodies are bad and that Jesus came just to save our souls. But what Paul here is not saying is that our bodies are wicked. No, we need to remember that when God became incarnate, took on flesh, God decisively declared that our flesh is good. 
that it is a part of God's good creation, and it will be renewed for all of eternity. Our body is not some gross necessity that carries us until we get to heaven. And it also means that our needs and our desires are not all twisted and wrong. The desire for food and sleep and intimacy and for fun and for fellowship and companionship, all of these things are how God has made us. Yes, they can become twisted and disordered by sin. And the passions that Paul is attacking here is declaring as evil are the ones bent by sin, the disordered desires that are out of line with God's creation and God's intent and ultimately are destructive for us. But it is a mistake when we, dis when we regard our bodies with disgust or shame because I don't think Jesus does. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that we are to honor God with our bodies. And I don't think we should lose sight of that here. The other thing that I think we need to be cautious of is I don't think we need to be paranoid. If we were to take the Bible seriously, that our option is to offer ourselves to God as tools of righteousness in everything, all the time, then it might be possible that this little idea creeps in and suggests that perhaps God is a particular kind of impatient micromanager. That God wants to have control over everything and every little detail in every little way in such a way that it would suffocate and squash you. And so don't make God wrong, mad by doing it wrong. But we know that God is patient and abounding in love and slow to anger and not a micromanager. Even this past week in youth group on Wednesday night as we wrapped up a series on the Ten Commandments, we posed this question. What areas in your life do you tend to think that God is maybe not so interested in? And I was with the guys while we were talking and we got pretty far down the rabbit hole. We did agree that the outcome of professional sporting events and tying your shoe are probably things that God is not terribly interested in. But who we greet in the hallway and where we sit at the lunch table and how we apply ourselves in studies and conduct ourselves in class and how we play video games and for who long, for, for how long. And what do we do with our sports and our extracurriculars? Perhaps God is more interested in all of these things than we might be prone to think. So what does it mean for us to submit to God's lordship in our life, especially if this is the daily task? What can we say now? I mean, perhaps it frightens us a little bit that we're not really in charge because we have grown so accustomed to thinking that we are. But it's good news that we have a good Lord. And the call to choose who our Lord will be, who we will submit ourselves to, whether that is to the destructive power of sinful desires, or to the liberating and sanctifying God who loves us. This call is the same as it's always been. We must choose who we will serve. 
When Abraham was asked to go to the land that I will show you, it was the same invitation. When Moses encountered a burning bush and said, go back to Pharaoh, it was the same invitation. When the people were asked to cross the, the desert and the sea, it was the same invitation. And when Joshua stood on the bank of the Jordan River and said to the people those famous words, choose this day whom you will serve. That's always been the question. The difference is they didn't really understand that they were not actually free to choose. But now we are, by God's grace, through Christ. And so we have been set free from the captivity of sin and set free for choosing a life for God. And that is the daily task, a moment-by-moment decision empowered by grace. And there is no one else trustworthy enough, not even ourselves, or good enough to be our master other than Jesus. But we have to choose. And brothers and sisters, I know that some of you have been following Jesus for way longer than I've been alive. And I'm grateful for that. But please don't think that the invitation for you is any different. Even if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, that doesn't change a thing, does it? And I would ask how many times have you learned the same lesson? And had to trust again and again. And I know some of you can testify to the fact that this is a daily call. So can I ask you to do it again? Because Jesus asks for our full, undivided allegiance. As we seek to live as he loved, lived and loved as he loved. Our lives are poured into a mold, into the form of Christ. And we can respond with gladness. And every Sunday as we gather to worship, we are asked the same question. Have you come to worship Jesus? And I have begun to suspect that what that really means is who are you giving your allegiance to? Because we have to choose. Now I've noticed something recently. I'm not sure if you have. But I'm going to call out Pastor Mark on this because I think it's time we said it plainly. And he didn't tell me not to, so that was his fault. You might have noticed that as we come to the end of the service and prepare to receive the sacrament of communion, that Pastor Mark has been slipping in the language of allegiance. That this act of eating bread and drinking juice is a declaration of our allegiance to Christ. And he's right. It is a pledge of our allegiance to follow Jesus on his terms. It's not just a memorial. It's more than a remembrance. Our time of worship together is not just an exercise in feeling good together. This is an exercise in choosing to this day who we will serve. It is a moment to declare again where your allegiance is. Because you might be withholding something. Perhaps that you don't even know. Or trying to do it all right because you're sure, you're sure that your, third, your way is the third way. So what shall we say? Shall we serve our Lord or do you think there's a third way? Will you trust your life to a good God or insist on doing it on your own? And so I want to ask, when you hear the invitation from Paul one more time, to offer yourselves to God 
as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Have I spoken the truth this morning? You've been listening to a podcast from College Church of the Nazarene, University Avenue. If you care to join us for worship, we meet each Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at 200 University Avenue in Bourbonnais, Illinois. We also offer a full range of activities, classes, small group meetings, and events throughout the week. For a complete list of what's going on at College Church or for more information on how you can get involved, please go to www.collegechurch.org.